Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, Conversations About Impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Gloria Neeland. Gloria has been a pioneer in the development of social impact investment products. She co-founded TriLink after a rewarding career in the international asset management industry. She's responsible for leading the company's high-level strategy and directing its growth since its founding in 2008. Gloria brings to TriLink Global more than 30 years of experience in executive management of multi-billion dollar financial institutions, as well as deep expertise in the creation, sales, and distribution of investment products. Welcome to the podcast, Gloria. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I'm curious... Why is someone who has kind of what I guess some people see as a mainstream investing investor type um, investment bank type background, how did you end up focused on social and environmental impact? Why is that important to you? Wow, that, it's a great question. I'm going to try to give you a, <laughs> um, a brief answer and then we can sure. uh, you know, dig in later. But um, I had a really awesome career on Wall Street. Um, I loved what I did. I, um, you know, made a lot of money, did a lot of uh, really great fun things. Um, but in 2005, I had this moment where I just felt like I wanted my life to have more meaning. And so I retired and I thought, okay, now my life will have meaning because I will uh, go be a philanthropist, I'll get involved in causes uh, I care about, and do more than just give money, I'll actually, you know, go go be on the ground. And so for two years, I traveled around the world, uh, got involved in causes I cared about, and a, a few things happened in that time. Uh, I would say one of the biggest was me realizing that I was not made to be that person. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was, you know, one of those big aha moments. Um, and then the second was everywhere I went, I couldn't help but see uh, investment opportunity, but really from a different perspective. So I had been to most of these countries before. I was mostly traveling in emerging markets, um, but I was always there as a capital markets investor. And so you look at things very differently. Um, and frankly, you don't even leave you know, the big city uh, of, of whatever place you're in. And so I was in these places realizing how much they had changed in the last couple of decades. And so one big um, thing that I noticed was there were many emerging market economies that were quite developed in terms of their infrastructure, in terms of their legal systems, um, and they had huge population growth. Um, and basically I looked at that and said, wow, there is so much opportunity here from an investment perspective. Um, and nobody is providing capital. 
And at the same time, uh, let's see, 2007, I was invited to join this think tank discussion group in London. And the topic was, how do we use capitalism to solve social problems? And all of that kind of came together at the same time for me. And I realized that we should be using capitalism to solve social problems um, because there are so many social problems to be um, resolved that all of the aid and philanthropy in the world isn't going to solve the problem, that we really need to just start doing capitalism a different way. Um, and so from that point, then I started looking at um, my own personal goals a little differently. And I thought, okay, how then can I use my background and my experience um, to help make a difference in the world um, by bringing all of that to this back then it wasn't even called impact investing um but this was 2008 2009 it was just starting to sort of form as a new industry now sri had existed esg was sort of getting off you know um then and i think there were some things called social impact back then there were triple bottom line investments but really right. as an industry it hadn't come together yet and mm -hmm. I realized, wow, it's going to take a lot of people with a lot of different background and experience and um, everything to, to really change the way we do capitalism. And that was a way that I could actually have impact and probably mm -hmm. have the most impact um, given my own experience. So, yeah. And a wealth of experience too. So, yeah. Well, I you've said in uh, said in an interview that that uh, philanthropy, and you you referred to this, but I wanted to come back to it is that philanthropy can't fix the big problems in the world that people have had at least historically and even until recently been kind of thinking about. Well, there's my my business bucket, my my profit bucket and then there's my philanthropy bucket and that all things related to social impact should come out of the philanthropy bucket and you um had uh, you have some views about that so can you share those with us sure really it's more views about um investor uh cap uh, investor um perceptions on their own capital so if you think about, there's basically three investor types. There's retail investors, which are generally the mass affluent, high net worth investors, and ultra high net worth investors. They're still individuals. And then there's institutional investors. Um, <clears throat> and retail and high net worth and ultra high net worth, those that are individual investors, um, those are the ones that I was saying basically historically have had two buckets for their capital. So if you think of someone's capital as the money we have um, to live mm. our lives, right? Um, most investors have their philanthropy bucket, which is where they fund anything that is deemed concessionary, where it could have a positive impact. But if they're not going to get a market rate return, then it's considered a philanthropic gift. If it's in their investment bucket, um, then they expect to get market rate returns for the type of investment that it is. And if you 
think about it practically, it makes sense. But my view was informed from my own experience um, managing people's money over years. Um, but if you think about the mass affluent or the retail investor, right, it makes sense that they really can't give up investment return to do good. Because if they've got their investor, in, you know, investment capital um, that they're trying to invest so that they get a certain return, it's designed so that they won't outlive their money, right? And so yeah. they really can't take less because then they might live longer than their money and that doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Right. High net worth investors are a little different because that isn't their biggest concern, but their biggest concern for most of them is living the life that they've become accustomed to and leaving a legacy. And again, if you look at that from an investment perspective, they've designed an investment strategy to achieve that. And so they look at those dollars and say, then I need those dollars to achieve market rate returns because that's my investment strategy. Right. Then institutional investors are different. The way institutional investors invest is according to an investment policy statement. And they simply can't, right? They have to meet the terms of the investment policy statement and the goals that of whatever they're managing money for. And so when you when you just look at that practically, you go, okay, then it makes sense that people have two buckets. Um, and so rather than trying to um, only have impact investments that are concessionary and solving problems that way, why don't we say, we, you know, we're gonna create invest, impact investments that are gonna generate market rate returns because there's real opportunity for that. And then we hold those companies accountable to a higher standard, both from a sustainability and responsibility perspective, but also from an impact perspective. Um, so have you, have you found that that's been the case, that you've seen impact investing linked to financial returns? Absolutely. And, and that's been yeah. our goal from the beginning. I basically said, I'm going to prove that you don't have to give up investment returns to do good. Like, you can mm -hmm. have both. Now, that is not to say that there aren't um, problems and issues that will be solved only with philanthropic or aid. You go, it, of course there are those kinds of problems, right? Not everything is an investable uh, impact investment, but you, like looking at them differently is okay. Trying to create this new middle ground is, is hard for people and their own perceptions. Well, how have you been able to develop a scenario where people do get market rate investment returns? I know that you're, yeah. you're involved in um, a lot of initiatives in developing countries, which I was really intrigued to hear about. Yeah, so our focus is on an opportunity that exists to bring private capital uh, to growth stage small and mid-sized businesses in very select developing economies um, where our capital allows them to grow, which then supports economic development in their market. So we measure economic development through job creation, wage increases, increase in taxes paid, increase in revenues, um, because there's lots of studies that show that small and mid-sized businesses who are committed to 
running their businesses sustainably, responsibly, and committed to their communities um, do generate lots of economic development. And actually, mm -hmm. if you look at the United States and other advanced economies, you see it in real time, right? It is still our small and mid-sized businesses that create all of our jobs, <laughs> create, I mean, all of our private cap private jobs, they create all of our uh, exports, they generate 70% of our GDP. And so if you think about that same uh, phenomena happening in developing economies, if we can get capital to these SMEs who actually can help create jobs and grow the economy, um, you're solving one big problem there. Um, but for us, we've basically said, well, that's not enough. We actually want our companies that we're um, investing in to also be engaged in this idea of creating positive impact in the community and in the world. So we require all of our companies to create an I mean, a, a impact objective and that they're willing to be tracked and measured on. And then we measure them annually and we track and report our progress, uh, both at the fund level on economic development and at the borrower level. Um, mm. So we don't invest in uh, growth stage, I mean, in, um, sorry, early stage companies. We only do growth stage. So again, these are small, mid-sized businesses that um, need capital to grow, but don't have access. And so we make loans to them. We don't do equity investments at all. We make loans to them. And you can think of us like a commercial bank, basically. Um, and you also do trade financing. We do, right? which is a form of lending. So trade finance is, in, at least the way we're doing it, we're financing their, uh, typically we're financing their receivables or we're financing a particular export transaction, like a contract. Um, and so, yeah, in both cases, it's we're still loaning money to them. Hmm. Well, you're in these developing economies, and, and I know one area you're in, for example, is sub-Saharan Africa. What are the political, social, even environmental challenges in those regions of the world that are less developed? I mean, it sounds great from a, an investment standpoint of here's kind of an untapped potential and you're supporting these companies, but also they're dealing with their immediate climate and, and uh, environment. Um, how, how have you been managing that? Yeah, so that's a great question. We, uh, our chief investment officer, is a uh, global macro specialist, also from Wall Street, someone I've known a long time. Um, and we developed a proprietary system that um, analyzes all emerging market countries, basically um, looking for things um, related to growth, stability, and access. So we look for countries that have strong growth fundamentals um, and then that um, have stable governments that have strong legal systems so we can mm -hmm. uh, take liens, you know, protect our property rights, things like that. Um, and then where we have free access as a foreign investor. So there's this 30 factor model that literally does a heat map um, of countries and they're green, yellow, or red. Greens, we will invest. Reds, we won't. Yellows, we might under certain circumstances. Um, so that's the top down. And then we do this bottom-up analysis that looks at um, all of the country-specific factors um, that 
are uh, unique to what we're doing. So we look at interest rates in the in the region. We look at um, is there any government intervention in these types of programs? We look at um, is there opportunity for impact through our lending? Um, and all of that then gets fed into our model and we start narrowing the list of countries. And then because we use investment partners to do our loan origination, so they're the ones on the ground, our feet on the ground that are generating these new leads for us for potential opportunities. Um, they then also give us feedback about where uh, there's opportunity. And I would say one of the biggest focuses is how we can protect our investors. So we, we do collateralized loans. We take you know, everything we can get as collateral. And we're very uh, conscious of which country has, you know, is the best for taking which kind of collateral where you know you can actually perfect those liens and you can act on it if you need to, and where you need to structure things offshore from that country um, in order to affect that kind of um, lien perfection, if you will. And mm -hmm. so structuring is really important in all of our loans. Um, and I'm happy to say in over a billion dollars invested, we've had no loan losses. So it's a structuring um, focus, even though we generate, you know, really strong market rate returns. Um, we use our advantage as a lender because of this supply demand mismatch to actually protect our investors more. Hmm. Well, you, uh, I know you, you're involved with a number of different partners in, in working through these, uh, you have a partner model. Yes. So what can you talk a little bit about what that model looks like and what your respective roles are and how you actually make that work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it is a really unique model because um, most people think of if you're a, a money manager and you use other investment firms, everybody thinks of a fund of funds. And we are not a fund of funds. Um, I When I designed the company and created this strategy, I very... Uh, purposely did not want to be a fund of funds. And the main reasons for that were I wanted to be able to know that I was protecting my investors the best way I could because most of our investors are U.S. investors. And that meant I needed to be directly involved or we needed to be directly involved in um, the lending of money to these borrowers. So we needed to know the companies, we needed to understand, and we needed to have the ability to get involved if we needed to, um, which then doesn't work in a fund of funds. Also, there are multiple levels of fees, which I knew, one, were not um, going to work for most of our investor types and something I also wasn't comfortable with. And so I created this model where I said, well, I do need feet on the ground, so I could either go build out um, teams every country I wanted to be in, or I could find <laughs> teams that are already there um, and basically offer to share all of our fees with them um, for them doing what they love to do, which is investing. And so basically, we designed the model so that all of our investment partners who are private lenders in their own right in those markets, um, they originate loans for 
us. Some of them originate only for us. Some originate for us and their other funds. Um, and basically then they will find a business that needs capital, that looks like it meets our needs. They talk to our investment team. So we have our own credit team. Uh, each, uh, each of our credit teams are organized by region. So they're you know, connected to very specific investment partners in those regions. They know them really well. They spend a lot of time with them. Um, and so those partners send us a pipeline of potential borrowers. And then together, we work through all of the process that you need to go through to decide if you want to loan money to a borrower. So it starts with the tariff sheet. Then it goes to a, a first credit committee, which is like called gate one, um, where you're really deciding if you want to spend money on due diligence to take it to the next level. We do that first. We send them our feedback. They then go through their own credit committee. And then if we agree to spend money, then, then they go do the on the ground due diligence, do the rest of the research, um, bring us a loan package that we then analyze, go through our own credit committee, um, give them feedback, and then we start working on structuring it together. They get it through their credit committee, and then we finish the structuring and it goes through their investment committee um, and ours if it needs to. Uh, and then often we are loaning money directly to the borrower, or if we are doing it jointly with them in one of their funds, we will do it through a participation. Um, but we try as often as possible to be majority in interest um, in our loans so that, again, if something goes wrong, we can get directly involved and help manage the situation. Well, it's quite a feat to manage partnerships across uh, different cultures across distances and what are what are yeah what are some of the challenges that you've run across um in in doing that because it's it's quite a quite an undertaking to try to do that it is um it's interesting because the biggest challenge we have found which will not be surprising against one of those things that when i say it you'll go oh it makes sense um is that non U.S. investment firms, so particularly in emerging markets, don't appreciate the regulation and the environment that we operate in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And especially in a public fund, like one of our funds is a public fund. And so there are very, um, you know, mandated reporting requirements and um, triggers that we have to manage to. And if you're not, if you've never been in the U.S. and you've never invested in the U.S., you really don't understand that or have an appreciation for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say early on when we have a new partner, it's the thing we probably spend the most time on. And I would say the other thing that is related to that is also just generally around communication um, and cultural differences because you know as a result of that um and it is the reason actually that a number of investors we have a couple actually of institutional investors that um had tried going directly to one or two of our investment partners to invest in a particular country or region 
and realized that they had a lot of trouble communicating with them um, and, and managing them for what they needed as a U.S. investor. And so they basically said, we're just going to come through you guys because you managed all of that with them. Um, <laughs> and it's much easier. Plus, I get diversification across four different regions of the world and 36 different countries. So um, it, it is, again, it, when I say it, everybody goes, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, <laughs> but it is, the, I would say, the biggest challenge that we have um, mm-hmm. you know, on a regular basis. Other things like um, uh, languages and stuff, it, it's really not a problem. Most countries do business in English, even emerging market economies. So a lot of the documents are already in English. Where we find that they aren't is more often in South America. Um, but we have a lot of Spanish speakers um, on our team. And every language of every country we're in um, through someone on our team. But we also translate our documents. So, um, you know, these days, fortunately, that's not as big of a deal as it was 15 years ago. Sure. Yeah, a lot of uh, auto- automation yeah. process. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've said in an interview that you think impact investing can change the world. And that's a phrase that gets tossed around a lot. Um, so how, can you, how realistic is that? Yeah, I think... Um, I really do believe that it can. And I think it's very realistic if we, if we really engage, uh, if we work together, number one, and we engage all investors in this idea that they can influence the behavior of the companies that they invest in. So basically their money is what is allowing these companies to be successful, whether they're private companies or public companies, right? So even public investing, you're still investing either in a company's equity or debt, right? You're, it's all the same. So if you set a standard for their behavior or they don't get the money, then it will start changing behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so I really do believe that if we can get all investors thinking that way, and then we can set a set of standards that everybody agrees to, which I would say, you know, we're getting closer to that, like with, from an ESG perspective, the environmental, social, and governance standards, um, we've made a lot of progress there, particularly in the U.S., around what does that mean and what are the standards you should be looking at and holding companies accountable to um, mm-hmm. And I know that early on in that whole ESG movement, they, some funds were basically just essentially paying lip service to it rather than having a deeper impact right. oriented focus. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's starting to change. And I know there's quite a few ESG uh, investment firms today that are even doing advocacy work, right? So they'll mm-hmm. um, go to get something changed by attending the actual um, annual meetings of the companies and putting a ballot on the board to get something, some behavior changed. Um, And so I would say, if you think about it in a public company context, it starts with, you know, holding companies accountable, but also engaging from an advocacy perspective to try to change behavior. It's Mm -hmm. easier in private companies um, because 
so often in, with private companies, you as the investor are their only source of capital to grow. And so as long as you're clear about what you expect from them, then you can have a lot of influence on their behavior. Um, and so I, like I really, that's why I say, I really do believe that if we work with companies at all levels from startup to public um, and set some standards that everybody can buy into and we're all sort of singing from the same hymnal um, that we can change behavior, which means then we can change the world. Hmm. I love that description. And it's, it's, it speaks to uh, a very grounded reality around this because I think there's a lot of high-blown, um, you know, sayings and, and uh, conversation about that, but that really grounds it. And, and one thing that uh, I know is important for you has been tracking as a big part of impact. So you can see that the effects are real and not just wanted. So what are some of the most important metrics you use for the companies you invest in? Sure. Um, it's funny. I had a, I attended a, a seminar once early, early in my career and there the uh, speaker had this phrase that, that stuck with me forever, and it was um, inspect what you expect. So hmm. I've always been a big proponent of reporting and tracking and having metrics, right? Because if you don't do that, then it's easy, not just for others, but even for yourself, right? To, to not um, stay accountable to those goals and those metrics. So. I do think tracking and reporting is really important. And so from the very beginning, um, we developed a, a very uh, robust but practical tracking and reporting system um, that starts with the very first time we start talking with a company. Um, and so we actually track and report on two things, uh, broadly speaking. Um, all of their environmental, social, and governance um, policies and practices. So we have a whole ESG screening process that we go through with every borrower company. We do it um, literally from the beginning. So we have impact ESG analysts who are part of our investment team, and they sit or they participate as part of the investment team from the very beginning. So they're constantly analyzing. Um, the, you know, what's going on from an ESG perspective. They do all that analysis. Um, some of it is company reported, some of it is independent. Um, some of it is just independently verified. So annually we do a reassessment and then we report out on all the ESG policies and practices. And then on an impact side, um, we have portfolio level where we are tracking uh, economic development. So. I think I mentioned we track um, job creation, wage growth, revenue growth, um, things that indicate that there is economic development happening. And then we also track and report on borrower selected impact objectives. And those are things like um, capacity building for their particular industry in their region. So um, we have a uh, food processor in South America who basically was buying fruits and vegetables from local farmers and then they would process and package them and export them to places like the U.S. 
Um, and one of the things that they did was they would do training for all of these smallholder farmers um, in how to have more energy efficient farms or how to use um, uh, technology, newer technologies to be able to um, create and grow their whatever fruits and vegetables in a way that they could be exported. So they meet certain standards and they don't use certain chemicals and things like that. So they did a lot of training, um, which then is resulting capacity building. Um, and so we'll have borrowers who do things like that. We have a borrower who is a waste to energy uh, processing company. So they take municipal waste in Mexico City and turn it into low carbon jet fuel. Um, and, wow. Yeah. So their impact objective is, uh, it's got multiple aspects to it, but waste reduction, um, you know, creating uh, uh, low carbon energy sources. So they've got impact objectives that are very specific to their business uh, that we track and report on as well. Great. Well, I'd, I'd love to dip a little bit into uh, your career because you've had such an amazing international career with Deutsche Bank and uh, Bank of America and, and a number of other firms. And you've been a real pioneer as a woman in this realm of, of wealth management with leadership roles. And you're often the only woman. And I, I heard you tell a story of uh, early in your career of, uh, of trying to be heard in a group of nine men. Uh, would you mind sharing that story? Or Sure, I don't oh, mind at all. Yeah. Um, so I was young. I will, will mention, remind everybody of that. So I, I was uh, probably 26, um, but I was in a senior management team um, with, you know, myself and all men. Uh, and what's funny is I always thought of them then as old, but they're probably the age I am now. So, um, <laughs> it's amazing how your perspective isn't shifts. It, isn't it? And every time, like we had our management meetings every week and um, occasionally things would get a little um, tense around a particular topic. And what would happen, and it happened frequently, is there would be some issue that we would be debating and inevitably one of the men would say, okay, let's take a break. They'd all get up, they'd go into the men's room or the ones who were having the conversation, they'd finish it and then they would come back after the break and then they would sort of announce this is what we decided. And uh, wow. most of the time it didn't bother me because I, you know, maybe I wasn't involved in that issue or whatever, but it, it was enough times that I was getting annoyed. And this one particular time, it did involve something that I was very passionately arguing for and Sure enough, one of the guys said, oh, let's take a break. And they all started to get up. And I just thought, darn it, they are not going to do that to me. And so I just <laughs> followed them into the men's room. And I went into a stall and kept talking. <laughs> and they honestly, like, they did not know what to do. They all got silent. But I was still talking because I also realized once I got in there, I thought, crap, now what? Um, so I just kept talking. And they, you know, occasionally would talk back. Uh, and then finally, you know, after we were all done and everybody left, um, we got back to the room and then we finished the conversation. And the nice thing was they literally never did it again. <laughs> wow, that's great. Well, you obviously made an impression on them. So, Obviously. And I wonder, 
I wonder how those experiences, how did they, how they affected your impact? Do you see things in, um, maybe in change over time or in, in mentoring other women? Have you seen things shifting? You know, um, it's interesting. I do think things are shifting. One, because there's more general awareness, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I also think the world has changed. So um, the the stereotypes have started to change between um, what women and men need to do. Um, and a, a really good example of that is I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And when I went to college, basically, if you were a woman and you wanted a career that you would need to go to college for, um, you pretty much had two choices, which was a school teacher or a nurse. Um, right. Otherwise, you could be a secretary or <laughs> something, but you didn't need a college degree for that. And nowadays, obviously, that there's very few careers where you will see no women in the program or, you know, there are some still where you see fewer women than men, but there isn't that same stereotype, um, you know, that men and women each have to do different things, right? Um, right. Now, from a um, how to be successful in a uh, career where you're in an industry that is male-dominated, because we do still have a lot of male-dominated industries, including the asset management industry, um, my best advice to women is um, <laughs> to not make it an issue. And I know that sounds simple, but when I look back on my own career, I realized that I, I look at it and go, well, gosh, I don't think I ever had anybody um, treat me differently because I was a woman. Now, does that mean they didn't? Probably they did, and I just didn't notice. Um, because I was there to do what I needed to do. And I thought, well, I need to do the best job I can do given my own skills and my own goals and ambitions. So, you know, I need to make my own career work for me. Um, and I didn't, you know, I probably didn't let people ignore me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and you kind of transcend the issue by, don't make a thing about it and just be contribute in the way that you contribute with your expertise and experience. Yeah. And in fact, I had a, um, and what, what really made me realize that it, that was what I would, you know, that's how I was, was um, in probably the, one of the last years I was at Deutsche Bank, um, I had been, because I was on the executive committee, I would attend these meetings that were called lead 200. It's the top 200 managers, um, at Deutsche Bank, at least at the time, I don't know if they still do that, but the top 200 managers um, from all the businesses worldwide, and we would get together somewhere in the world um, and focus on, you know, um, what the results were and strategic priorities and things. And I'd probably been to six or seven of these meetings over the years when this particular event happened. Um, and at this meeting, uh, it was in Switzerland, there was a woman speaker who came in. She was, she was working for one of the managers um, who was part of Lead 200. So she wasn't part of the group. She just came in as a speaker uh, to help him present something. And the whole time she was presenting, I noticed she was staring at me. And like I'm sitting at a table you know, in the audience and I just noticed she keeps looking at me. And it was to the point where it was a little bit awkward. 
And <laughs> after it ended, we were actually taking a break for lunch. And I got up and I could feel that she was like, as she's getting off the stage, she was still like staring at me and then coming towards me. And I, you know, this is so weird. And she came over to me and grabbed my arm and she said, oh my gosh, can we sit together at lunch? And I was like, well, sure. And she said, I, I just have to ask you, what is it like to be the only woman at these meetings? And, and I swear to God, I looked around and I went, oh my gosh, I never noticed that. Oh, wow. And I really hadn't. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it made me realize that I just don't notice, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's an advantage to that for sure. And you, you obviously just are doing what you do. Yeah. So, and I, I would love to dive into all of this in more detail, but just, uh, uh, just as a way to kind of bring, bring our time to a close, I always ask a, uh, three rapid round questions. Are you, are you game? Sure. Great. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Is that it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everything is always harder than you think it's going to be. It takes longer. It costs more money. Um, And when you're doing something really good for the world, you think, Oh, it should be easy. It isn't. <laughs> it's good to have the realistic view. Yeah. <laughs> What's the one thing that you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Yeah, I would say um, for me personally, I'm a person of strong faith and I have meditation and, and prayer time every morning, no matter what. If I have to get up at two in the morning, I do that to spend an hour um, in the word and with God and praying. And it really, um, helps me keep perspective. It keeps me very grounded. Um, and it helps me not be as stressed about things as I might otherwise be. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a practice that I've actually had my whole career and I've needed it more as an entrepreneur than I ever did. (laughs) (laughs) I, I always encourage people to have a morning practice of some kind. And I, uh, I, just recently started doing what I heard you say uh, in an interview is that you get up early, however early that needs to be in order to make sure you have that time. And it's so, it makes such a difference in the course of your day. Boy, it really does. And the rare times where I haven't had time or I didn't make time to do it, I got up late something, I can tell a big difference in that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Gloria, what's one piece of advice or an insight that you'd share with another business owner who's asking themselves, I want to have more impact. How do I, how do you, what do you offer to them? Yeah, I would say for them to really look at, uh, do a self-assessment and look at, well, what is it that they're really good at? What is the experience they've had? What is the context they can bring? Um, You know, what, what is it? that they can bring to this whole industry um, and then focus there. Like don't try to, if you're an experienced person anyway, don't try to do something you've never done before um, thinking, oh, this is, you know, this will be fun. Um, if you're really serious about like, especially for a lot of people that at least people I've met that are at that place in their life and career where they go, you know, I just want to make a difference. Um, I always encourage them to do what they do, but just refocus what they're doing um, in a way that can have more impact. And mm. 
it's, it's funny because we all think we need to do something totally different, which is what I thought, you know, and right. I realized, oh, no, I didn't. I needed to just refocus what I did before um, in yeah. a way that is more impactful. And you saw an opportunity there to make use of all the things that you already knew in, in an entirely different way, which is great. Yeah. Well, Gloria, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have today. I think that uh, it's really going to give people another insight into the investment world and the way that uh, you're looking at investing, certainly from the, the private investor standpoint, is, is a really valuable one. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ursula. I appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, either through contacting me at uh, my office, and uh, my phone number is 310-997-0580, or uh, emailing me, which is uh, gneeland, G-N-E-L-U-N-D, at trilinkglobal.com. And Trilink is with a C. Um, Everybody always wonders why we did that. And it was really just because, honestly, Trilink with a K looked really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so it's T-R-I-L-I-N-C-Global.com. Yes. <laughs> we'll have a link in the show notes as well. So Perfect. Well, thank, thank you so much, Gloria. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. I appreciate it. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.